Abortion remains one of the most controversial moral issues in our country and around the world. Given the deeply held convictions on both sides of the matter, many people despair of even having civil and productive conversations about it, let alone achieving a consensus. But I think that there is a sensible approach to the issue. I'll get there by examining a key argument typically employed by the most vigorous opponents of abortion. A few years ago, Catholic authorities in Arizona took the extraordinary action of excommunicating a nun in Phoenix. What was her offense? Approving an abortion at a Catholic hospital for a woman who was told by doctors that she would die if she didn't have that procedure. She had a condition called pulmonary hypertension, in case you want to look that up. Sadly, the policy of prohibiting abortions even when needed to save the life of the mother is not unusual in such settings. It's consistent with decades of edicts by Catholic popes. It's the policy in force in all Catholic hospitals across the U.S., and it's the rationale for highly restrictive laws in countries like El Salvador and the Philippines. Now let that sink in for a minute. Some religious and political leaders would rather have a woman die along with her fetus than to allow her to have an abortion. Now, I recognize that most people who oppose abortion do so because they believe that a human embryo is a person from the moment of conception. From that, they infer that every abortion amounts to murder, the unjust killing of an innocent person. If those are your beliefs, I'm going to try to persuade you that there are serious flaws in your assumptions and that you should instead adopt a pro-choice view. Consider first a seemingly unrelated matter, the criterion that almost all of us accept in declaring a person to be dead, namely brain death, or more precisely, whole brain death. We now understand that someone who's clearly brain dead may still have a beating heart if their breathing is sustained by a mechanical ventilator. The vast majority of us don't believe that taking organs from a brain-dead individual kills that individual. The death of their brain already ended their life as a person. And the heart is just a pump. It's not the home of our soul. Heart, transpl- don't, heart transplants don't involve exchanging a new soul for an old one. I think we can also affirm confidently that persons die when their brains are no longer capable of sustaining any sort of conscious experience, as with permanent comas or vegetative states. Some of us may be uncomfortable saying that the soul is nothing more than the mind, but surely if the mind is no longer present and can't be fired up again in the brain that's been its home, the soul has departed, the person is gone personhood requires at least a brain that can generate conscious experience. Even those who affirm the sanctity of life would not want to wait until every last cell of a person's body died before declaring them to be dead. Now let's go back to the claim that a human embryo is a person from conception. Usually that view is grounded in a belief that ensoulment by God occurs at conception. But in fact, there's no functioning brain present at conception. There aren't even any neural cells present that might eventually form a working brain. In early embryonic development, there are only undifferentiated cells. Those who claim nonetheless that ensoulment occurs at conception cannot explain how the soul would ever have any connection to the brain, and thus how our daily conscious experience would have any relationship to our soul. 
Now, for more on that, listen to podcast number nine in my series. So when does the fetal brain develop sufficiently to make consciousness possible? The best estimates I've read by neuroscientists indicate that sometime between 25 and 32 weeks gestation, neural cells in the fetal brain finally form enough synaptic connections to enable consciousness to occur. Therefore, since a capacity for consciousness is a necessary condition for personhood, it makes no sense to regard human embryos or fetuses prior to that period as persons. So, no abortions performed prior to that stage can plausibly be condemned as murder. Early abortions might well be said to kill human beings, since a human embryo is obviously a living being, but not human persons. Embryos are also innocent, of course, but in a trivial sense only because they lack minds. In short, embryos are not morally equivalent to babies. So when are abortions typically performed in this country? It turns out that 99% of all U.S. abortions occur before fetal consciousness is possible, including the Arizona case I mentioned earlier where the woman was only 11 weeks into her pregnancy. And among the remaining 1% or so of U.S. abortions, most have compelling moral justifications, such as serious risks to the life or health of the mother, in which case abortion could be considered killing in self-defense. In some cases, the fetus has developed a devastating condition like anencephaly that precludes consciousness and would not permit it to live even if, it were, if, even if it were allowed to be born. So again, abortion in that instance would not equate to killing a person. There are other good reasons, chiefly bearing on the rights and well-being of women, for not seeking legal restrictions on abortion in this country beyond what's already codified in federal laws. In most human cultures until recently, the interests and rights of women were given very little weight. Women were often regarded as the property of their fathers or husbands rather than as equal persons. Women could rarely refuse to have sex with their husbands or to bear children. Single women who became pregnant due to rape or were too poor to raise children were unable on those grounds alone to obtain approval from most authorities for abortions. Today, I think we rightly react with outrage to such violations of women's rights, autonomy, dignity, and well-being. Many people who disapprove of abortions nonetheless support the legal right of women to obtain them, in part because the consequences of women when abortion is illegal are often deadly. In countries where abortion is illegal, women are often still so desperate to end their pregnancies that they seek back-alley abortions and die in appalling numbers from infections and blood loss. That used to be true in the U.S. as well, before the Supreme Court's ruling in Roe v. Wade. Many pregnancies are avoidable, of course. Some couples, couples who aren't ready to rear children have sex anyway without using contraceptives. There's every reason to advocate and practice responsible sex to avoid unwanted pregnancies and to increase public access to contraceptives. But there's no convincing moral reason to deny women their legal right to abortion. Women must be trusted to make responsible decisions about their own pregnancies, their right to resent and oppose efforts to take that choice away from them. Finally, consider the moral advantages of subsidizing abortions, both in Medicaid and private insurance plans. 
Abortion is obviously not an ideal form of birth control, but contraceptives sometimes fail, and some women even in this country have inadequate access to contraceptives. By enabling women to have abortions that they couldn't otherwise afford early in pregnancy, we would reduce the number of late abortions as well as the number of unwanted children at risk for abandonment, neglect, abuse, poverty, and malnourishment. The best book I know about the ethics of abortion is called Life Before Birth, The Moral and Legal Status of Embryos and Fetuses by philosopher Bonnie Steinbach. For current information about abortions in the U.S. and around the world, and if you're interested in donating to worthy organizations, I recommend Planned Parenthood, the Center for Reproductive Rights, and the Guttmacher Institute. This is Dave Perry. Thanks for listening.